Hi, I'm Pamela Wallen and welcome to No Nonsense. Today, a conversation in this episode about COVID, what else, and uh, how we are going to deal with this as time unfolds. Will there be a vaccine? Are we going to find treatments, etc.? Dr. Volker Gertz, I'm not saying that just right, you say it for me. Okay, that's pretty close. So he is the director and CEO of Vito Intervac. He's a research scientist. Uh, The University of Saskatchewan's Vaccine and Infectious Disease Organization, uh, International Vaccine Centre, Vito Intervac, that's what that means, works with partners around the world to study human and animal uh, diseases and solutions. So you're the guy kind of leading the charge here in Saskatchewan to try and find a vaccine. How does that come about? Is that part of your own work history? Yeah, so I've, like all my life, I've worked on vaccines, vaccines for both animals and humans. And really, that's what Vito Intervac is all about. We, we are here to help the country dealing with emerging diseases. And we're happy to, to do that for COVID-19 right now. And how did this happen? Did you just obviously, when the disease broke out, did you say, this is our job? Or did Ottawa come to you and say, work on this? Or how does it, how does it work? Yeah, so we, we uh, keep monitoring emerging diseases when they, when they arise around the world. So there's, um, you know, networks that monitor mm-hmm. these new diseases. And when this one came up and the WHO beginning of January confirmed that there was a new disease, I phoned uh, Dr. Matt Gilmer, who at that time was the general director, the scientific general director for the National Microbiology Lab in Winnipeg, and said, Matt, this might be a big one. Um, We're here (laughs) to help. If there is anything we can do, let us know. And since then, he and I spoke essentially every second day or third day um, on our cell phones, mostly at night, checking in, (laughs) seeing if we can help each other. And then as soon as it became clear and the sequence was published, so the the genome of the virus was published, um, we started to design our vaccine. In fact, that same afternoon, we had our vaccine already designed. And then uh, it took us about four and a half weeks to generate a vaccine, to assemble it, to make it in the lab. And as soon as we had enough material available, um, we injected into animals to start the testing. And so Vito Intervac was the first in Canada to isolate the virus, the first to establish an animal model for it, and then the first also to test the vaccine. So a couple of things. I, I don't want to live in your head. I can't imagine when you see all these things in the world, like you must be the guy when somebody says, what keeps you up at night? You're the one that says new diseases. That's right. And you see them and you live in that scientific world, so you're hearing about it in a different way and on a different level. Yeah. And so we've been telling government and others for many, many years now that when the next pandemic comes, um, the consequences could be catastrophic. And now we're experiencing it. But, you know, these diseases happen all the time. We just, just before COVID-19, there was a disease in animals and pigs called African swine fever, also in China, and it's scheduled to kill every third pig on this planet. It has huge consequences for the global protein industry, for the pig industry, and it's probably the largest threat to Canada's pork industry since, I don't know, 200 years. And where is it? It's right now in China. It's going around like wildfire. China, Thailand, Korea, Vietnam. Um, It's all over the place. Vaccines are now coming becoming available or in development it's a disease that's well known but uh, largely ignored mm-hmm. and we don't have it in north america but it, but that's Touchwood. in the global world that's the biggest issue and that's what we keep telling people 
like just you know another pig disease about six years ago yeah it came into north america within 10 months had killed 10 million pigs yeah. no vaccine available Vito was the first in North or first in Canada and second in North America to make a vaccine for it. That's what our job is. That's what we're here for. When these diseases emerge, we try to come up with solutions for it. The other frustrating thing for you must be that the media, the public, gloms on to certain diseases and ignores other. And COVID-19 kind of was one of those ones where everybody jumped on the bandwagon. We've lived through SARS and some other things. It was never a response like this, shut everything down, you know, lock yourself indoors. It seemed extreme, but necessary. How, how do you look at that? So I think in the beginning, we all didn't know much about the disease. And so maybe it was um, too much, too much fear created by the media. Uh, especially, I think the fear was in like, you know, in, like everything that is sexy and has yeah, yeah. fear and emotions and all that in it is int of interest to the media. <laughs> but I think what we're seeing now being is... so polite. <laughs> what we're seeing now, though, is that some of these measurements, as they were proposed then, are still probably the most effective ones, right? I mean, social distancing, um, ideally mask, and when you, when you can social distance, I mean, Tony Fauci is still saying those right. are the best ones. Right? And so... You know, I think the quick response, realizing that this is a disease that is different than SARS-1, this one is going to continue to spread. And we were all closely monitoring. And as soon as we saw the first human-to-human -human transmission outside of China, that's when, for us, it really became a more serious disease. Like, you know, initially it was all just travelers from China right. going, and so they would take the disease with them. But then the question was, can they now infect others? Mm -hmm. And once that was demonstrated, it was just a matter of time before it would come to Canada. And when it did, then we all were watching how like how fast it will spread within the country. And what does your community say to each other as you're sitting in the labs and watching all this? Why don't they just stop the damn flights? Why won't everybody put on a mask? Like, how do you look? We're looking from the from the outside, where all we're dealing with is the fear and the hype. You're looking at facts. So, yeah, so we were trying to look at it from a more scientific point of view. You know, what do we know about this disease? How does this compare to the to SARS-1? How does it compare to other coronaviruses? What can we extrapolate from here to there? You know, what kind of vaccine strategy do we need? What, what drugs might be available? Um, so I think, you know, we were more focusing on how do we get this thing under control? And until we have it under control... Um, it's really up to the public health experts to come up with these measurements and, and these recommendations. We got so many mixed messages about masks and, you know, everybody knows we were trying to preserve the, the, the PPE for the health professionals. But it seems to me we, we should have just been told as a population, you know, go, go home and get a scarf and put it over your face until we get this. Wouldn't have that been... Well, so I think, <laughs> yeah, maybe, but I think in the beginning, like, like you said, it was really um, the issue, you know, we were really, really concerned about our hospitals and our frontline healthcare workers and, and even Vito Intervac, I'm not sure if you were, 
Um, we're now decontaminating masks for the local hospitals here in Saskatchewan. So, so they can reuse. They can be reused. So we were, again, the first in the country to have that all figured out. It's approved by Health Canada. We, we decontaminated already over 10,000 masks. So we have students who are coming in, volunteering their time. We use a process that is well characterized, and that is mm-hmm. what we're using for our equipment and for our rooms. Um, so again, in the beginning was the fear we're running out of masks. Right. And so then I think the recommendation for, you know, for people on the street to be careful and not to wear too many so that we have enough for our frontline healthcare workers was a good one. And then we saw that manufacturing was catching up, right? So now there is enough masks available. Well, so now I think it's, it's easier to say to people, go and wear a mask. Okay, but... but I mean, ideally, we would have liked yeah, everyone okay. to wear a mask. Okay, that's sort but, of what um, I was... But, you know, again, we didn't understand in the beginning how transmission works, right, and we right. also didn't want everyone to... Exactly. ...to use up what we had, the stockpiles that we had. So you're doing this officially and properly uh, for hospitals. What can you tell an ordinary person who has their mask and they carry it around and then they come home from the grocery store, but they want to reuse it? What should they do? Wash it. Just, um, you know, regular laundry or dish soap. I use dish soap at home. Just, you know, like you dish and wash your dishes, squirt off dish soap, um, warm water, give it a good wash, and it's... And it's do that good. with the reusable, with the, the blue... That's right, so okay. the cloth stuff. And if you use um, some of the other ones, then, you know, maybe don't reuse it too often. Like, as soon as you have a feeling that the integrity of the mask is somewhat yeah. compromised, don't use it. Okay, I've kind of sprayed mine a couple of times yep. with Lysol-type products, and then too. I leave it for a couple of days, yes. you know, because I oh, yeah. don't yep, want to sure. inhale it. So and especially actually... if it dries out, completely dries yeah. out, like even if you put it on a vent or something in your yep. house, completely dries out, and that dries out the virus and destroys it too. Just time? Yeah, time and, and air, dry air. Okay, and, and what about the sun? Sun is a very effective killer, so if you put it out on the deck, if you can, yeah, even better. Okay, this is very, very helpful. Oh, I, I want to come back to the virus for a moment because you, you were the first and you were jumping on this, and but we're also told about vi- viruses that they mutate every 15 seconds and they're different in each individuals and in different climates. So what are you, what kind of vaccine can you have for a virus that's constantly morphing? So this one doesn't mutate as much as some of the other viruses, like influenza, for example, has Mm -hmm. a much higher mutation rate than this one. We do see, though, already um, two or three strains now circulating. Um, And so that's one of the the, um, challenges we have now that the sequences are available. We're comparing them and then predicting whether our vaccine still works or not. And so right now our vaccine would be still okay, um, but that's what everybody does. And so uh, you're right, as viruses change, vaccines lose their effectiveness and so you have to keep changing the vaccine to you know follow the new viruses that are coming along. so the dna sequencing which everybody said was released early and that's why there's so much progress already i think it was the australians recently even moved to testing on humans so how do you do you get a new dna sequencing sample from somebody yeah yeah. so in in these isolates as they're coming in they're all being sequenced and there is now um, big databases where all the new information all the new isolates are being fed in 
And so then you can do comparisons and you can actually see how within certain regions of the world, certain types are evolving and how they change more towards this and more here over towards that. Mm -hmm. um, but, but those changes, most of them are not affecting those targets that we are targeting with our vaccines. So for now, most vaccines are still good. Okay, explain that. You're targeting something very base, so it, it doesn't matter what the window dressing is around it? or So the virus has various structures, right? And so one of the structures on its surface, it has this protein that's called a spike protein because under the microscope and the, the coronavirus looks that's like a corona like. and has yeah. these spikes there. And so they, the virus uses this spike to attach to your cells at your mucosal surfaces in your lung. And so the cells have a receptor for it and you need to have a specific... Um, interaction with the spike protein in the receptor, and that allows them to virus, the virus to attach, and then mm -hmm. it can get into the cell. And so this this actual interaction here, the the receptor and the binding domain on the virus side is fairly small, and so you know for it to interact there, it it only requires a little piece of the whole genome of the virus. So you can have many, many, many different mutations happening in the other part. If they are not specifically here, they're not really affecting the virus and, and, and its ability to attach. And so this protein, the spike protein, is what most vaccine manufacturers currently are targeting. And again, it's a very large protein, which can have many, many mutations. The target that we are after is fairly small. And so it's it's not so affected at the moment by at least the ones that we're using. And, and as soon as there would be a change, the virus cannot infect anymore those mutants would be running out anyway because you know they're not they're not able to replicate so it's we're we're good for a little while there for sure almost every day there's a story this does incredible brain damage you may never be able to think again your lungs are going to look like you know it's been run over by a, a tractor tire um, all the different variations are the is there some truth to any of it, or how do we sort through this? Yeah, so I think this is, again, um, you know, there is a lot of hype and maybe also um, misinformation in the media. I don't really think we understand all of those things at the moment. What we know now is um, that there is, of course, the the respiratory stage of the disease, so everything in the lung, and then also... Um, the involvement of other systemic organs. And so, you know, there is some issues with, with um, you know, your, your functioning of your blood coagulation, how you control right. that. Um, there is shutdown of other organs um, as a result of this inflammatory response, this overreaction of the immune system. But the long-term consequences, we don't really understand. And it's way too early to speculate whether it will be you know, causing long-lasting brain damages right. or any. I think we don't have that information at the moment. The data is not there, and it's all just speculative. You talk about the, you know, the, the, the when of the next virus, right? When it happens, not if it happens. Yet we're all living in our own economies, whether it's Canada or Sweden or whatever it is, uh, trying to cope. Sweden, for example, didn't shut down. They decided to go with the herd immunity uh, approach. We've shut down with great and grave economic consequences. It's almost impossible when you sit here today and say, we don't know what this is going to look like. We don't know how it's long it's going to last. How do we find that middle ground of walking, of carrying on with life, of having an economy function so 
that that we have even the finances to fund the kind of research that you're doing versus just locking down? Well, that's a loaded question. I so, know it is. <laughs> so I think, um, so there is a number of answers to this. So number one, I think it's, the country is recognizing, in my mind, hopefully the country is recognizing that we need to have organizations like ours to be there when the next pandemic happens, to work on pandemics all the time and be prepared for it. And so part of our research, for example, and I'm really excited about it, we're really trying to change how we make vaccines. At the moment, vaccines are being made, a new pathogen emerges, and then within you know a year or 12 to 18 months, we come up with a vaccine. And you know, even if we fast track and accelerate, we're trying to essentially catch up to the to the new disease, right? Can we not use bioinformatics and artificial intelligence to predict what the next pathogen might look like, and then make vaccines prior to them emerging? And have them the stockpiled, have them ready, and when the next Wuhan outbreak occurs. You could have them coordinated by WHO on an airplane, fly them over there, give 5 million doses to the people right there, and try to contain it. And so that's what at Vito now, much of our research is focused on. How can we make vaccines now for a pathogen that we don't even know what it may look like? Okay. How can we predict? How can you do that? Yes, and so the <laughs> science is there. We're doing it now. Um, that's We're very excited about it. It's a paradigm shift on how we're doing vaccines and how we're developing them. But I think the science is there. So that's one answer, right? And so you have to have research centers like ours that have long-term stable funding to do this kind of work. And then I think the next question to this is, you know, as a country, we also, in my mind, need to recognize the, the, the fact that emerging diseases will happen, right? And so, I mean, we all know how it goes through funding cycles, other priorities come up while mm -hmm. this money gets shut down. And so that's a little bit what happened, right? If you go back and over the last 10 years, one of the questions to Obama was, what's your greatest concern? Well, it's the next epidemic, right? Mm -hmm. Or the next pandemic. And so, um, you know, I think as a government, as a country, we should almost always put a certain amount of money towards this as, you know, this is our... I don't know what you want to call it, our security fund or something. Yeah. So there's always research going on. There's always manufacturing capacity. Like we let a, the country allow to essentially lose our manufacturing capacity. Oh, no, it moved away to other yeah. countries, right? Or companies buying in and then eventually moving their stuff. So now we're finding ourselves in a situation where we depend on other countries. Well, and it, Like we even, even for our own vaccine, I need to go internationally to get some of the components made. Um, because in Canada, we don't have the, the capacity. The components of the vaccine. Parts of it, yes. And so um, I think this is, again, so the second answer, we need to support this research. We need to have centers like Vito and Tabac. I really see us becoming Canada's pandemic center in the future. Um, we have the best infrastructure in the world. You know, now we are recruiting the best minds in the world. This is the place where we specifically can focus on emerging diseases. And then for government to recognize that these things will happen, both on the animal as well on the human side, and there should always be a task force available, money available, infrastructure supplies, available, supplies. Yeah. Exactly. Like yeah. a and, and so we talked about this. Um, pandemic preparedness after SARS-1. Mm -hmm. I mean, there were big programs and then eventually they ran out and, and because of other priorities were maybe not supported as much. And so now, boom, the pandemic hits and we say, oh yeah, didn't we talk we about this? We threw out all those uh, supplies because they were stale dated. No, it's crazy. 
Well, I hope we've learned our lesson this time yes. in terms of, of staying ready. You're animal testing, testing this on animals at this point. Uh, others have moved to humans. When will you move to humans and what does that mean? What humans? In the fall. So okay. our clinical trials are scheduled for the fall. Right now, we're, we're testing the safety of the vaccine, which is absolutely critical. And then we're also getting um, clinical-grade material manufactured so that we can do the, the human testing. Like, you have to do the testing in humans with essentially very, very clean material, GMP right. material. And that is currently being manufactured, parts of it even outside of the country. And, you know, that those materials come in, then we do the safety testing, testing, and then we're going into clinical trials in October. And how do you find the humans? Which ones are they? People who've had the disease, people oh, you, who haven't? You, oh, you'd be surprised. We have had people contacting us from all across the country, from the West Coast to all the way Halifax, people volunteering. They've heard about us in the news. They want to be part of the vaccine studies. There is no shortage of volunteers um, for the phase one trials, which is essentially... That's amazing. It's just looking at is it safe so is there any unwanted reactions to the vaccine no no issue and so we're doing this in in uh, halifax um, mm -hmm. there's the canadian center for vaccinology a group who is really specialized on this like the other two vaccines that are going forward right now and um, there is no shortage and no problem finding volunteers right now and they've got to be people who have not been yeah, so the regulator defines Spoke. that. Initially, we're starting with a middle age group, so 18 to 55 years, uh -huh. um, adults, volunteers. Um, and then as we enroll and see the data coming out and it's safe, we move um, older people in and so on and, and so eventually cover the whole spectrum. It, there's always these questions. I mean, we know, for example, old folks' homes, retirement homes were hit hard. Uh, and so you always assume that the elderly are more vulnerable just because of their systems. But it was younger people bringing it in who might have been working at two or three institutions. It's hard to say which is chicken and egg That's on this right. one. What's your view? Well, I think it's um, the way it looks is this disease manifests itself more severely in, in the elderly. So, you know, younger people are probably not getting as sick, although there is exceptions. But, you know, in, on average, it's the elderly that is getting sicker. So the risk is that younger people take the virus into these facilities and then because of the close proximity of, of all these people and then also some of them, their immune compromised status, you know, that's a great breeding ground for the virus mm -hmm. to cause problems. And so... Um, that's why with this particular virus, um, the old folk homes are a little bit of a, you know, the highest risk if you want. But other, other diseases target, um, you know, younger yeah. um, people or kids. Um, you know, it's not always the elderly. How do you live your life? Would you get on a plane and go back to Germany to visit family? Uh, when you go to the grocery store, do you wear a mask, gloves? How, how do you deal? So I used to travel um, <laughs> at least 25%, if not 30% of my time. So I traveled all around the world. I haven't traveled since January, and um, I would at the moment, I would not. Um, I do wear a mask, so at work we wear masks. Yeah. And uh, even coming here, I wore a mask up to the hotel. Um, so when I can, I wear a mask, and especially if I know that I, I won't be able to social distance, mm -hmm. I wear a mask to protect others. 
um, how do I live my life otherwise? <laughs> well, I have three small children, and so um, they're all asking me, when is this coronavirus um, over <laughs> so that they can go back to normal life? And uh, so hockey just started again in the province. My right. son had his first game on, on, uh, on Sunday, and um, you know we go camping and like we had a trip to Europe planned um, this summer, so now we go camping. So it's um, you know we we make do with what it is. And schools in September, will you send your kids to school? Oh yeah, they will go to school. Um, you know I think um, the way the situation is in Saskatchewan right now, we are really one of the you know um, regions in the country where we have very low caseloads so i think it's um justified that the kids are going to I'm, school i want to ask you about that because you've been here for 20 years but you you came from from germany w why are we doing well is it just because we're only a million people and we're kind of socially distanced people live on farms or in rural areas or is there something else is are we more compliant than most are we what, what accounts for it I think it's a combination of, of all of those. So I think um, because we're an agriculture province, um, many of us have farm roots or, or, or you know, our farmers themselves. So number one, we understand the importance of infectious diseases, mm -hmm. right? So working with animals, livestock, you understand the impact infectious diseases can have. Secondly, it's a large province and a few people only. So people, like you said, are spread out. Um, but, you know, you still have Saskatoon and so on. Yeah. So there I think it's really people, again, um, you know, are, are compliant, following the public health guidelines. They make sense. So it's like common sense. And, I, you know, maybe it's because we're a prairie province with some, a lot of farmers. Common sense, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, if you can wear a mask, wear, wear a mask. If you... If you can avoid large gatherings, avoid Do. them, right? <laughs> exactly. So I think it's... Um, it's much easier. And then if you think about public transport and so on, we don't rely on you know, like Toronto on subways, or New York, subways that are yeah. crowded with people. So yeah. like the combination of all of these things. The other thing that strikes me, and I know all provinces have done it, all many parts, it seemed here we had a plan. Okay, this is this is bad. We know this is the real thing, and it's going to cause a lot of trouble. We're going to do this in stages. There's me stage one, stage two, stage yeah. three, and three point six and three point eight, <laughs> and and I think it kind of gave people uh, a plan, so that they didn't have to think about forever. My life has been changed. I mean, our lives might forever be changed, but I think the communication is really, really crucial to this. Oh yeah. I think um, what we're seeing in Canada and then spe specifically here in, in Saskatchewan, good leadership, good communication, clear, clear communication. You know, we're in this phase right now. This is what it means. Then we move to the next phase and this is what it means and so on. If you compare that to the U.S., mm -hmm. uh, you know, everybody, every state is doing their own thing. People are confused. They're getting mixed messages. Yeah. I think our messaging is very clear. You know, and, and even if we don't know, like in the beginning, like you said, with a mask, I mean, maybe we were too slow recommending mm -hmm. to people to wear a mask. But as soon as the data was there, a recommendation was made, wear a mask, right? And so it's, I think, um, communication leadership is much clearer, much, um, much easier to understand than it is maybe in other parts of the world. Well, thank you for being one of those Thanks clear for having me. communicators. You've actually made me feel better, even though you're saying that, you know, we're going to see way more of these things. This yeah. is not the, the no, last. this is not the only one. Oh, boy.
All right. Thank you. Thank you so much. Really nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Communication really is important. That actually made me feel better. Dr. Volker Gertz, he's with Vito Intervac. He's a research scientist, of course, at the University of Saskatchewan's Vaccine and Infectious Disease Organization. This is really a first, a lot of the first in the world in terms of their work and insights onto a vaccine. So we wish them all the best.